Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. My name is Jack McLean. I am the host. And today's episode, I interview Matthew McGregor the sports psychologist for the AFL Players Association for the last four years. Prior to his role with the PA, he has worked at the Hawthorne Football Club, Port Adelaide, Western Bulldogs, St Kilda, the Cricket Australia team and Olympic individuals and teams. Highlights from this episode, why mental health and well-being is critical for consistent high performance, knowing your identity outside of the sport you play, for example, who are you when you're not playing footy, how to create your game day routine to increase your focus, the importance of understanding the level of arousal you need for your best game day performance, the three mindsets when it comes to high performance, resilience, psychological flexibility, and openness. Before we start this episode, for those wanting to improve your 2K time trial and gain a competitive edge this preseason, hire a Prepare Like a Pro coach and join our individualized coaching package. Head to preparelikeapro.com and join our email list to receive a free masterclass. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for jumping on, mate. G'day, Jack. It's nice to see you again as you were doing that. I was just thinking, when was the last time you and I saw each other face-to-face? And I've got a feeling it was when you were making professional footballers dig up sand down at uh, Fairhaven Beach at about 6 in the morning, torturing them for about oh, of course. half an hour. Down in Fairhaven, that great That's weekend. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a good. That feels that feels like light years ago with everything that's going on since then. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? They had a lot of fun, and then all of a sudden the faces started to um to to turn a bit as the yeah. the footies they were trying to dig out of the sand they just couldn't find. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, now that you mentioned that, I haven't thought about that one, but I, I reckon. Um, yeah, Righty was looking at me like, have we found all those footies? <laughs> I think there was one that was never found, the golden football, the yellow one. Perhaps we should uh, give the Fairhaven Surf Club a call and tell them they can uh, dig the beach up, get the nippers out there and find it for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I'm, yeah I wonder if I've seen kids having a kick of, the, of a Hawthorne football uh, down at Fairhaven. I'll have to look, have a look this summer when I go down. But, um, yeah, thanks for jumping on, mate. I'm really looking forward to to um, yeah, sharing your story. Take, take us back to the beginning. At what age did you discover you had a passion for sports psychology? Well, it, look, it's a great question. And I think like a lot of people who end up working sort of professionally in sport, I, I probably had that sort of interest, um, passion before I knew anything about psychology. I was a pretty mediocre athlete, loved my sport, mm. but I was always a bit fascinated that there seemed to be more, you know, physically talented, um, skilled, powerful athletes. And I was always able to sort of, um, you know, compete at a certain level. And, and there was a bit of intrigue there for me about well, why, why is that possible? And I guess that was the beginnings of thinking, well, there must be something other than just sort of skill and power and strength and things. Um, and I was not a particularly um, interested student at high school in the subjects that I was being dished up. So wasn't until I sort of left school and was sort of aimlessly wandering about doing a whole bunch of sort of part-time, you know, jobs and whatever that I came across a, a psychology course and did a short course and thought, oh, hang on, this is pretty interesting. This is the stuff I'm, I'm way more interested. And even then, 
um, I didn't know that there was a career called a sports psychologist or a profession called a sports psychologist. Yeah. And I sort of, again, you know, just um, through, through luck almost found myself um, in a sports science degree. I did enough psychology units in my electives and then um, in the sort of mid to late 90s found out about a master's course where you could actually train to be a sports psychologist. Um, and that's, that's sort of where it, where it started. But even then, um, you know, as I was doing my master's, lots of the really experienced psychologists ahead of me were saying, look, it's, it's not really a career for most people. Um, there's only a handful of people in the country who get to practice and sort of be full-time sports psychologists. So I was doing bits of coaching and bits of um, psychology teaching at university and things like that while, you know, doing tiny bits of psych along the way. And, um, and it was gradually, bit by bit, painstakingly, um, you know, taking shape as something that I could genuinely do as a, as a career. But it, uh, it took quite a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the industry itself and in sports psychology has grown a lot. Is that specifically to Australia or were we a bit behind or is that just a worldwide sort of growth? Yeah, well, look, and I, and I think around the Olympics, which is the Sydney Olympics, when I say that, 2000, was sort of in, in, I'd graduated, I'd finished my, um, my sports psych um, specialist training then and I think people here were saying, oh, there's, there's so much um, sort of visibility about sports psychology. You all must be getting work left, right and centre. Mm. But it still wasn't a particularly viable profession for a lot of people. North America, certainly, um, right. through the college sports system, um, all the universities have you know, big athletic departments and they'll hire a couple of sports psychs who work in their sort of kinesiology departments. But we were probably a little bit behind that the professional sports here had, um, you know, some part-time roles, but they were few and far between. And then, you know, there were a handful of roles in the, um, the Olympic system. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was pretty lucky that after sort of whacking away for a couple of years, um, I did get a gig at one of the, um, the sports institutes and sort of therefore got my first opportunity to become a, you know, a full-time, that's all I do. I'm just completely immersed in, in sports psychology and you know, that was a, an amazing um, experience just to come across all these different athletes and sports that I had no idea about. Um, yeah, I've yeah, been yeah. a bit of a footy and cricket man through my own sport and dabbled in a few other things, but um, all of a sudden I was exposed to a whole bunch of different sports, you know, team, individual, um, development athletes, 12, 13, 14, and then, you know, senior world champion Olympic medalist athletes as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, and you mentioned, like, for the sports psychologist listening to the podcast, you mentioned how you did, you know, mentors have mentioned that there's not a lot of full-time opportunities, so you want to um, get experience in other areas. So I guess, you, you, you know, you're making ends meet and you did coaching and you did some lecturing. Looking back now, do you think working in those different roles has helped shape you as a sports psychologist when you become a full, you know, when you take on your first full-time gig? Did those skills yeah. transfer? Well, yes, no, there's some pros and cons. Um, I think it certainly helps um, coaching to get a perspective of, of, you know, what the coaches kind of go through um, because they're one of the, the, you know, the make or break people for, for psychologists that if, if you don't have the coach on board, um, it makes, it's not impossible, but it certainly makes life much, much tougher. If you have a really supportive coach who's had great experiences with psychology, has got a, 
is quite sort of psychologically minded. Um, it makes your job so much easier to work with the athletes and the, and the teams. Um, so certainly the coaching stuff, you know, helps, and even just to get that understanding of sports systems, you know, how do they work? Um, you know, how, does, how does funding come to a sport? You know, um, how does the sort of selection process work? All of these things that when you then start working with an athlete, often they're the things they want to talk about. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not getting picked or I am getting picked. And so I think, it, you know, to have a broad understanding and even, you know, work with some strength and conditioning coaches, some physios, um, all those other sports science, sports med people, yep. um, the broader your experience can be, the, the better. Yeah, and who were some strong influences on your career early days in terms of your own personal development? Well, look, I, I was lucky in that there's only two courses um, where you can train as a sports psychologist in Australia, and actually one of those folded um, a couple of years ago. So there was um, uh, UQ in Queensland and Victoria University here, and I had some amazing sort of academic mentors um, through VU and Mark Anderson. Daryl March and Harriet Speed were, were really influential and, you know, they're some of the, the really heavy hitters in academia. Um, and interestingly, I'm, I'm sort of crossing paths with all those guys again after a, um, a long period of time. But then when I got into sort of the applied field and I was, I was working, um, you know, there was at, at SASE, which was the uh, South Australian Sports Institute when I was in the institute system, um, there's some great sports scientists, Greg Rousel and, and um, Sarah Wolford, who are physiologists who'd sort of been there, done that, and worked with national teams and knew all about, um, you know, all those sort of national championships and selection events and international tours and how all that stuff worked. Um, and then more recently, um, as I've sort of come back to, to Melbourne um, and got involved in the AFLPA, Dave Williams, who I work with really, really closely now, um, and Lisa Stevens, and they're both psychologists with uh, sport and exercise endorsements as well, and have worked in multiple sports. And you know, we're sort of half peers and half mentors for each other, I guess. Um, it's you know, and it's it's great just to have people like that. You know, you can't help but learn when you're around people like this, and you know, I hope it's um, it's a little bit the same with them for me that we just sort of share ideas and information and stories and, and sort of debrief things with each other. Um, so I've been really, really fortunate, I think, across my journey to have all sorts of people who've collaborated, um, worked with me, um, mentored, and I've mentored them at times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's um, definitely a two-way relationship, isn't it? And, and you mentioned um, the work with, with Sassy and getting that foot, foot in the door and, and cutting your teeth um, with a whole range of different age athletes. Uh, how did you go about getting that opportunity? Uh, was it speaking to those uh, colleagues? Was it um, emailing, cold emailing, um, you know, for the sports psychs or even anyone that wants to work in elite sport that's listening in? What's, what's some of the ways that you found effective to, to get opportunities when maybe you don't have a big network base yet? Yeah, and lots, lots of the opportunities are never sort of advertised. Some are, particularly those in the Olympic system. There's a, because of the government sort of, influence in those programs they tend to have to sort of advertise lots of other opportunities though are, are a bit more word of mouth so networking is just worth its weight in gold and going to um you know events um seminars pd type things you know introducing yourself i certainly it's not something i was really comfortable with early on um 
But, you know, just picking up the phone and speaking to some people who you know about, um, you may not know them personally, but giving them a call and saying, well, what do you know? I'm just starting out. Are there any opportunities? What would you recommend? And, you know, I did a little bit of that sort of stuff early days and was, was quite lucky that there were people who, who spent some time with me who would say, all right, well, buy me a coffee and I'll let you know what I know and I'll <laughs> introduce you to this person. And, you know, lots of those people are still sort of in one way or another around me professionally now. Yeah, yeah. And, and what about for the developing athletes, like mainly footballers listening in? Um, what are some important things for young footballers to start working on in terms of mindset and psychology? Uh, what are some common things that you work with with younger athletes, I guess? And uh, what are some things, some skills that you can start practicing? Well, I think um, the, the way I sort of conceptualize it when I'm working with athletes, there's, there's two areas that we work on. And one is the more general kind of mental health and wellbeing stuff. And often, um, you know, athletes, whether they be developmental or, or, you know, sort of senior high performance athletes, kind of want to shove that to the side and say, no, no, just get to the performance stuff. Let's just work on the performance. But ultimately, that, that little apex, the, the top of the, the pyramid of performance, you're not really capable of doing much there and sustaining it unless you've got a really good solid foundation around the, the general mental health and wellbeing stuff. So I tend to recommend people spend a bit of time there. And here we're talking about stuff like understanding your personal values and, and sort of strengths and things like that. Um, even, even having a good sense of your own identity, who you are, what you stand for. Um, so spend a bit of time on that stuff. Um, but then I guess in the performance domain, probably the two things I work on most are um, arousal control, just understanding the gears um, that, that your mind and body can move through, mm. and then focus. And those two things are, are quite close cousins. They sort of work together a bit, that your arousal level will impact how much and what you can focus on and, and sort of vice versa. So they're probably the two things that I'd suggest to, to young athletes. Read as much as you can, listen as much as you can, ask a lot of questions. If you do have someone who's maybe made the next level above you who's in your orbit, grab them and say, hey, what are you doing in these areas? How do you sort of manage your energy and arousal levels around competition and training? And what do you do to help you focus on the right things at the right time? And just be an absolute sponge. And, mm. you know, if you get access to a psychologist, that's fantastic. But there's also a lot of coaches um, and even, you know, strength and conditioning coaches. I've worked with lots of great strength and conditioning coaches who are quite psychologically minded who may not have had, you know, decades of training, but will able, be able to just sort of make a suggestion or two around, you know, say routines, for instance, which often are a, a little tool for um, organising your focus. What do I need to be focusing on now? They're probably the, you know, the, the two main sort of performance areas that I, somewhere along the line, all the athletes I'm working with are going to be, we're going to be talking about those two things. Yeah. No, that's um, amazing. Thank, thank you for sharing that. There's a, a few gems to, to unfold. You mentioned identity. Um, how important is it to have um, your own identity that's disconnected to the sport you play? Because um, it can be quite common for athletes to where their whole identity is their sport, I guess, or as being an athlete. Uh, how do you go about building awareness around that? And then how do you go about yeah, having a healthy relationship with um, being a high-performance athlete? 
Yeah, and look, it's 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 critical, um, and it, it's critical for when your sport is not going so well. And we all know that that the longer you're in sport, the more likely it is that it's not going to be going well at some time. Nobody, you know, even the the Tiger Woodses have not been able to stay at the absolute peak of their game just perpetually. So lots of ups and downs, and it's in those down times when it's it's vital to have a sense of who you are when you're not a footballer or a golfer or a, a tennis player. And yet, um, you know, the amount of times, Jack, where I've sat with an athlete who's going through a bit of a, a slump and here we're talking about Olympic medalists and, you know, 200-game AFL players and say, well, who are you, mate? Who are you when you're not a footballer? And, and they, they don't know. They literally don't know. Go, I don't know. This is kind of all I do. And it just means that, you know, it's, it's fine when, when, you know, your sport's going really, really well. You're on top and life's on your terms. But it's for those times when things are not going well where it's critical to have that other, other aspects of your, yourself where you can say, well, yes, footy's not going that well at the moment, but I'm still a great um, friend and a son and I'm a um, commerce student or I'm a blogger or I'm a whatever and have these other selves. You've still got your footy self, but you just need to have a good sense of these other selves. And, you know, I, I think sometimes we, um, you know, we give the messages to, to young developing athletes that, this is really, really hard what you're trying to do. You're trying to be elite at something, so you've got to focus all your time and energy on it. Yeah. There's no time to do anything else. And it's almost inevitable that they will end up being these, these very um, you know, narrowly focused in terms of their, their identity, very narrowly focused people. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Thank, thank you for sharing your philosophy around that. And um, no doubt that will be really helpful for, for everyone listening um, to start noting down maybe some different, uh, layers that you have in your life that, that makes you who you are. Yeah. And then um, just yeah. before we move on, I mean, the, the, the term that we use there is about balance. And sometimes people think that I've got to do equal, equal amounts of football and equal amounts of school and equal. And it's, it's not a sense of, um, it doesn't need to be equal time or equal passion, but these other things just need to be in there somewhere. Yep. So you, you can still, you can on them. yeah, you can still spend, you know, six hours a day training for footy, but you just need to have little um, pockets in there of, of music or, um, you know, time with your mates or, you know, being a um, – Phil Hughes, I often use him as a, a, a bit of an example here. And um, Hughesy, for those who don't know, is an Australian uh, test cricketer, r- real character, and his passion um, – he loved batting and making runs, but his passion was cows – he just loved cows, and if you stop for five minutes, he would bend your ear about you know this cows auction. I'm going to buy this one and that one, and so he just had this other part of his his life. And if cricket wasn't going well, he could just dive straight in and call his parents back home on the farm and talk to the cows come home. Pardon the pun. <laughs> well, that actually raises a good point. If I imagine you've worked with athletes that are like, well, Matt, what should I do? I literally don't know what my identity is outside of football. What, what's the first step? What do, you, what do you recommend? It doesn't have to be athletes, professionals, whatever it is, but someone that's yeah, high-performing at what they do, they're obsessed about it, but identity outside of that, um, they're not sure. Um, what would be your, your advice? Well, we'd, we'd certainly have conversations about, you know, talk to me about some times in your life that weren't football or that weren't your sport where you just 
felt good, you enjoyed it, you felt like, you know, your authentic self. Sometimes I'll use that sort of language and, and they might only be little snippets in time, a little project they got involved with at school or, you know, something outside of their sport. Now, just about everybody can identify those things. Um, they just haven't spent much time exploring them. And we might do a little values exercise to say, well, what do you think of the values that sit under, say, your sport as well? Why, why does footy mean so much to you? And often these values will pop out. And then what we can talk about is, well, so you can live out that value in other areas of life. Footy's a great um, environment for you to, let's say, you, you know, your achievement is one of your values. You know, life's not worth living unless you're, you know, you're really striving to be the best you can be. And that's great. At some point, footy will finish, but you can still live out that achievement value in all these other areas of life. Mm. But we'll often have conversations around those sort of topics, trying to understand, you know, yes, there's a football self, but there's a few other selves in there, a few other roles that you play and may not have just spent quite as much time um, and, and energy in those roles yet. Yep. Yeah, I love that. Thank, thank you for sharing. That's, that's great advice. And that's, um, um, yeah, hopefully those tuning in are, are taking this on and, and, and thinking about these things. Um, and, and in terms of the arousal control, I think that's a, a good topic to talk about, like around game day, leading up to the game, and something that's mentioned a lot in high-performance sport, that you want to have an individual approach, practice different methods, um, but ultimately have a preparation that you know, really probably starts from the start of the week on how well you recover and, and it happens all the way through the week, you have, uh, what allows you to prepare. Um, and athletes that you hear about, like Travis Boak, spring to mind on how they find this routine and they're accumulating momentum leading up to game day that works for them. Um, and, you know, there's different beasts. On some game days, they want to be hyped up and then there's others that want to be super calm and relaxed. Uh, for those that aren't sure on where they sit on that spectrum, what, what would you recommend to, to do to help discover what, what is your best preparation on game day? Well, I think you literally have to experiment. Um, so pre-season games are a great opportunity. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're match-like. They're not quite the same intensity as, as a regular season or a finals game, um, but they're a great time to experiment with a couple of different approaches and you know, the ideal, you don't want to sort of try something once and go, oh, that didn't work. You want to have a couple of data points to look at. But, um, you know, I, I often w will recommend that we try a few different things. Most people have got a little bit of a sense of whether they're going to be a high energy person. No, I love it when I get, you know, my best games are when I'm, I'm really kind of charged up and buzzing or, no, no, I'm one of those quieter types. I like to just sort of, you know, slowly prepare, get my boots on, whatever, sit in the quiet corner. Yep. Um, and you'll often see players sort of gravitate to those that they like. Mm. So there'll be the, the chill-out dudes over in one corner and there'll be the high-energy dudes in another corner have got the, the tunes on blaring. But you really do have to experiment a little bit. And, and you know, for those um, who are tuning in today, the AFL guys are still doing this. You know, quite a number of them are still, you know, couple of them that I've worked with um, at the Hawks over the last few years, part of what we worked on is this. So, you know, and which one am I? You know, does it work for me to get in early into the change rooms and allow my arousal levels to come up a little bit, possibly too high, and then I calm down and relax and then I can gradually build up? Or does it work better for me to try and push that spike in arousal as late as possible? 
stay very, very chilled and almost as we're sort of running out onto the ground, that's when I'll – Takes takes all types, and it, it's it's been good. It's been one of the really nice things to see over the last ten or fifteen years. That if I think back to my early start, we treated all athletes the same. We mm-hmm. gathered them all together. Everybody had to get pumped up. Everybody had to do the same thing. We're now a bit more understanding of of difference, and we'll we'll trust the athletes. You, you've got to be working on it, and you've got to do something to get yourself where you need to be. But we'll sort of trust you to do that yourself. Yeah, and I imagine, like like you said, you want a few data points and you want to practice. Um, and it, particularly for a football, it's a, it's a long game. So maybe you had an amazing four, first quarter, but mm. you're so mentally burnt out, you can't even concentrate at, at the halftime speech because your arousal levels were so high. So, uh, yeah, it must take a bit of practice not only to be able to start well, but also be able to not be burnt out throughout the whole game mentally as well. Like in terms of probably that's probably more leading mm. up to the week, I guess, the day before the game and things. but. Um, yeah, how, how do you, is that just, again, practice and then speaking to your coaches and your psychologists about reviewing these things? Like, would you have a, a quarter time routine? You talked about how routine helps you focus and a half time and three quarter. Is it that yeah. controlled or is it a bit more fluid? Well, it, it, it tends to be a bit more fluid, but, you know, nobody gets up to, the, to that sort of peak point, that optimal point and stays there for the full game. Uh, there's just these little peaks and, and troughs and people have got to figure out where their bandwidth is. Um, and, you know, there's lots of trial and error with it, as I said before, but, you know, some players will, will find that they're really good at getting up and staying up at about, but then they'll come in at half time and they'll need to sort of recover and relax a bit, but find it difficult to pick their levels up again for the start of the third quarter. So they might need a little tweak to their routine. They might need to do something a little bit more intense when they get back out on the ground after half time. Um, or when you come to the bench is another time when your arousal levels will, will change, usually drop. And some players, that's a very necessary thing. Others will need to, um, before they come back on the ground, do something to just kind of get a little bit charged and energised. So, you know, there, there, there's lots of nuances to it. But, you know, if you think about arousal levels being, you know, fluctuating like this, and we, we just try and figure out what, what the right bandwidth is for you. For some, it's like this. It's great. No, no, I need to really, when I come to the bench or at quarter time or half time, I really need to just park it and let some steam out and come right down and I'll pick myself up. Others are, no, I can stay pretty close to, to my sort of optimal uh, level most of the time. Yep. And within that, like you said, there's, it's not just the start of the game. It's throughout the whole game. Um, do you think sports psychologists have a role on the bench from a performance point of view and being able to reset and then get the arousals levels back up and help the players with that? Yeah, look, they can. You know, my, my, my philosophy is that if the player and I have done all our work well, perfectly, um, you, you don't need me at all on game day. I'm just a casual observer. Reality is that we don't always get it right and things go wrong and, and some players do like to have someone on the bench that they can come to and who can help them if they just can't quite, um, yeah, calm down or if there's something they're just sort of steaming because there was a, you know, they made an error or there was a bad decision given against them and it can be really helpful for those sort of players to have someone that can go, hey, Jack, you know my thing, you know my routine, you know how to what to say and do that just gets me to chill and relax and refocus. Um, 
So, but I, and I have, uh, I think I, I did it once or twice when I was at, at port, um, sat on the bench, and you can certainly um, pick up a lot more when you're that close to the action as opposed to, you know, sort of being um, either watching it, you know, on TV or in a viewing room or something sort of elsewhere. You can sort of see who is coming to the bench and looks like, you know, they're, they're going through their kind of refocus um, routine and who's, who's not, who's still kind of losing it a bit and might, you know, need, need a bit more um, nudging, cajoling. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. And, and it's, um, yeah, it's interesting to see, like, so it's, it's about education and giving them the tools, it sounds like, so then they can yeah. be able to cope throughout the game. What about individual athletes that you've worked with um, or that you, or maybe colleagues that you know that work with like maybe NBA athletes uh, and, and, you know, there's a re- it's quite popular in America that you, you have your own strength and conditioning guy. I imagine you have your own, sp- you have your own team mm. basically because it's quite, there's a fair bit of instability in trade and, and it's very different to the Australian culture. Is there sports like that where they do have their, their person when they go to the bench or in quarter time uh, or is it still the traditional player has the tools, they've got the head coach? and Yeah, and even in our sport, you're right. Um, it's the kind of culture in NBA is a little bit different that you sort of have your coaching staff and then each individual player selects their own support team and they might have a sports psych and they might have a physio and, and sports med people and strength and conditioning coaches that are sort of like their entourage. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that even happens to a degree in, in our sports here too where certain athletes, you know, people like me who are available to the whole team, but certain athletes will have someone that they kind of really trust who they, they think, you know, sort of knows them and knows, you know, what their mindset is and what they need to do. Um, and, and, you know, in the individual sports, I suppose the culture is a little bit more around, you know, say a good sport like golf where golfers will have their sports psychologists and you're not necessarily available to, to everybody. Yeah, interesting. That's- yeah, yeah, no, and I, I'm fascinated by that stuff, just the different cultures in different sports, and there's no necessarily right or wrong way to do it. Um, you know, my, my philosophy is I like to be embedded. I like to be in the team and at training and, you know, part of it because I can see and hear a lot of what's going on, whereas, you know, I've had other sports where I've sort of been a consultant where people will train and play and then come and see me later and you're then kind of reliant on them saying, oh, things went well or I did this in the moment and I didn't do that, whereas when I'm there, I can actually see things and hear things and go, no, actually, you didn't talk at all. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was on the boundary line and you went right into your shell. I, I couldn't hear your voice at all, whereas that's something they may not have been aware of themselves and if they were sort of reflecting back to me uh, a week later, maybe it doesn't come across so yeah 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 context having anything mm, else. yeah hey guys cj here um i've been fortunate enough to work with jack for the last two years preparing for last year's nab afl draft combine and then this year's nab afl draft combine um he's been absolutely amazing helping me zone in on specific areas of what I wanted to work on, which is my endurance of the 2K time trial and um, the 20 metre sprint. Trying to crack that under three seconds has been a massive goal for me this year. And I feel like that the work that I put in with Jack, he's just helped me skyrocket um, for my personal goals, which has been absolutely amazing for me. But it's not only it's not only what he's done on field for me, it's what he's done off field for me. He's been able to help me be persistent with the lockdowns that we've had 
stay motivated, prepare for massive events, especially the combine this year, which was done over Strava, unfortunately, that we couldn't get out to the Holden Centre and compete um, against the other, the other prospects. But also the massive one is just recovering. He's been able to give me a massive, massive influences on how to recover properly. Obviously, fueling for your next sessions massively for me as well, and the advice that he's given me so far has just been second to none. It's been really appreciative what he's done. Um, I've really enjoyed working with Jack. I feel like we've become a bit of a we've made a bit of a friendship, which is always it makes it easier when you're training when you've got basically a mate that's telling you what to do. It makes it a whole lot easier than a, than a random coach that you've never really met before. So I feel like Jack's just helped me help me prepare for the combine as, as, as best as I could. And yeah, I can't appreciate the stuff that he's done for me. And yeah, he's made me really tick some boxes in, in my own my own goods and hopefully recruiters and are happy with my improvement. And yeah, it's a massive shout out and thanks to Jack. And going back to your career progression, um, you've worked in a range of different AFL clubs. Was that something that you focused on early days and you, you had a passion and, and almost a goal to work towards working in AFL clubs or did it come uh, organically, sort of naturally to you? It was, it was probably a little bit more organic and sort of circumstance. Like, I, you know, I really enjoyed um, footy as a sport myself, but I'm a bit of a sport nuffy and I'm one of those idiots who can watch you know, kids skipping at the park and think that's sort of interesting, just yep. movement and how people, you know, do things in sport differently. Um, yep. It was circumstance to start with. I knew someone who was down at the Bulldogs, um, you know, leadership position, and it was very hard to get um, opportunities. So I just called him and said he was sort of at that GM footy level. I played cricket with a, a, a guy and yep. said, oh, well, can you help me get my foot in the door here? Um, so, look, I've, I've, I've certainly enjoyed my time in footy, but it's tended to be um, circumstantial and I, I thoroughly enjoyed the seven years I had in the Olympic sports and doing all those, you know, there was a stage there where I was the, um, the, the national sports psych for the canoe polo team. Oh. Now, canoe polo is a sport where you hop in a, a boat in a pool with a paddle and a ball. It's just like this hybrid of about four different sports and, Somehow, I just ended up being <laughs> the, uh, the the sports psych for the national team there for a little while, which was great fun. Just meeting these cool people who are, you know, some of the best in the world at what they do, and and learning about this, you know, bizarre different sport. I've had lawn bowls and croquet and rowing, swimming, hockey, you know, all sorts of different things. So I've tended to just go, you know where the, the work is and where something will interest me. I think, oh, that's interesting. I haven't done that before. I might give that a go. Yeah, and we mentioned there's sort of two main focuses as a sports psych uh, or two big rocks, I guess, the well-being, uh, mental health, and then the performance side. And athletes tend to want to probably it's more comfortable to talk about the performance than the mental well-being, but they're so interconnected. Um, at, like how do you try and get athletes to understand that um, to work on the performance side, we do need to open up and talk about the your values and who you are as a person. Like, how do how do you create that comfort, I guess, and build that rapport with an athlete? And, and that's probably the key part, Jack. I, I think there's really high awareness now. Going back when I started, you know, twenty something years ago, you'd really struggle to convince anybody um, that it was worthwhile talking about, you know, mental health and wellbeing. No, 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 you know. That's for people who, you know, perhaps does it need to be in hospitals and stuff. Let's just talk about the sport. Now, you know, if I think about the, the Hawthorne boys, for instance, 
you know, big chunk of them are really happy to talk. They understand how important mental health and wellbeing is. Mm-hmm. So really happy to, to, to talk about it. And there's probably about a 50-50 split between people who go, no, no, footy's taking care of itself. I'm, I'm pretty cool with that. Let's just talk about, you know, me and what I'm like off the field and all of that. And, and you know, the other 50% who said, no, I reckon I've got that stuff sorted. Um, you know, how do I stay focused or, you know, how do I not get nervous before games? And so I, th- I think that the awareness is high. It's, it's the building the trust and rapport piece for that, that wellbeing stuff. That's, that's a bit more challenging because we have to be a bit more vulnerable. It's sort of a safer area for all of us to talk about your sport because we all love sport and know sport and, you know, there's certainly no stigma around that. It's just building up enough sort of trust and rapport where people can say, oh, yeah, there's this other part of my life that I'm not all that comfortable with or I just want to make some changes. And and how much for a sports psych that's working in a team, whether it be the Olympic, um, AFL, like how much are you involved in team dynamics and team cohesion uh, and working with the coaches on those those uh, attributes? And and how much is it one on one in a consultation room, supporting the athletes, giving them these tools to be able to uh, on a more individual level? Um, yeah, what's the balance there? And it's it's it varies um, from from program to program. And it's, it's a really important thing to, to clarify when you start working with a, with a group is what is it that you want me to do? Because, you know, most sports psychs um, have skills and abilities in different areas and some might, you know, some might pigeonhole themselves a bit and say, no, no, I'm just Team Dynamics guy and I don't do too much of the, the one-on-one. Um, I'm probably a little bit more the other way, but we've certainly all had the, you know, and the training in, in team dynamics and, and culture and, and things like that. Um, but it's definitely something that you, you try to sort of figure out and establish with, with the sort of the, the leadership, whether that be the head coach or the general manager of sometimes the, you know, the, the captains and um, senior player leaders to figure out what is it that the, the team wants me to do? What areas do you want me to go into? And, where are my sort of strengths and, and skills and, you know, where it really starts to harm is where you get a good click between what the, you know, the team, the organisation want you to do and what you're really kind of passionate about. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And it, you mentioned how important it is to have a strong relationship with the head coach. Um, I can imagine in your experience there's times where you haven't had that uh, luxury. What, have you had an experience where you've been able to sort of not turn that coach but you've been able to... Um, build a, a strong relationship to the point where it's flipped, where at the start it was a real challenge and then it ended up um, changing over time where you're able to implement the things that you and really make an impact on the program. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I'm asked this question from time to time and, and the program I always talk about when I got to, um, to SASE, one of their sort of flagship programs was um, sprint kayak, flat water kayaking, and they'd produced, a, you know, medalists and national team athletes um, over the years. But when I got there, you know, it being one of my blue ribbon sort of programs to work with, it was sort of my number one. The coach and the athlete were already overseas. So I kind of potted around for the first few months at home doing other work, but back in Adelaide, well, they were all sort of overseas. And um, so I didn't actually, I felt like a bit of a shag on a rock, to be honest, for quite a while. Um, And when they got back, you know, then they wanted to have a bit of downtime. And so I was sort of a bit, I reckon, overeager to start with. Um, and they'd also had some really good consulting experiences with the previous sites, which, which helped in the end. 
but you sort of um, compared to those people, go, oh, yeah, yeah. well, we loved so-and-so, but you're not them. Yeah. But in time, um, you know, I, I travelled with that team a lot, um, worked with all the athletes. The coach and I became really close. And if I'm honest, in our final few years there, um, almost the, the way it worked was I was the, the head coach's sort of right-hand man and oh, he'd wow. almost be saying, look, you're my psychologist. If you happen to do some good work with the athletes, that's, you know, the icing on the cake. But we'd room together. He would sort of talk to me about, hey, this athlete's got a big race tomorrow. How do you think we should approach it? What should I say to them? Um, so it was almost like I was there for him. Um, and, yeah, I still worked with, with the athletes um, quite a bit, but that was how, how he wanted And it was a great consulting experience and, you know, we, we're still sort of mates now living in different states. But, um, yeah. That, that's, um, that's one that took a little bit of time just to build, but in the end it was really worth it. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Mate. Great work and it sounds mm. like a, um, a challenge but something that you overcome and, and navigated your way through it and then in the end it became one of the highlights of, uh, yeah, your working relationships. Is that, is that the sort of is that the optimal where it is you and the coach and, he, and, and behind the scenes you're consulting the head coach, supporting them, uh, obviously there for the players, but ultimately just being able to uh, help the coach deliver their best self to the athletes. Is that where you feel like you can make the biggest impact as a sports psych or is it more, or is it circumstantial depending on what the, what the head yeah. coach is? It, it really is a bit, bit circumstantial. I mean, the head coach, you know, as I said at the start, it's, it's really difficult if the head coach isn't on board, isn't sort of overtly supportive, um, you know, just, they're the most powerful people in the players' eyes and the athletes' eyes. So if the head coach is saying, hey, we've got a psychologist, it's really good, it's worthwhile, you should all do it, or sort of, you know, almost marching them into your office or, and sort of booking them in to see you and that sort of thing, you can still do good quality work, but it's just that little bit harder. Um, and, and that balance about um, where you spend your time mm. it, there's an element here of, of the, the trust that the athletes have in the whole system because if you're seen as too heavily aligned with the coach and talking to the coach all the time, there's a small group but nonetheless an important group of people who will go, oh, well, perhaps I won't share that. Um, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, that bit of information with Matt because he's always over there with, you know, the coach and I don't know if I can trust him and if that information is stuff. Yeah. So it's, it's quite a fine line that you have to walk, walk as a psychologist and, you know, not necessarily be seen to be too close to any particular, you know, group. Yeah, tricky. Um, yeah, because often the, the people who are the most sort of vulnerable, if you want to use that word, don't trust easily. And it takes time to, to build those relationships with them and to get them to sort of open up a little bit. And, and they'll never do that if they think that you're going to run off and, you know, say something straight to the head coach or to the, um, you know, chairman of selectors or whatever it might be. Yep. And what are, what are some attributes that you get excited about from an athlete that with all the world-class athletes, AFL players that you've worked with, um, now when you sit down with an athlete for the first time, you pick up those attributes and you're like, oh, yeah, we're on a, we're onto a winner here. What are some strong sort of mindset things that you like to see um, when working with someone? I think and I'm really glad that we're starting to use this term mindset. Um, there's certain buzzwords that, uh, you know, get bandied around for five minutes and everybody's all about, you know, grit or everybody's all about, you know, mental toughness or 
and then we shift. But my training and, and my background is in sort of neuroscience. So mindsets is 100% exactly the term that we should be using to talk about what is it that happens up here. We've got all these, you know, literally millions, billions of, of mindsets. And so there are a lot that contribute, but I guess a couple that, um, that over 20 plus years really seem important to me. Uh, and particularly recently, because of all the volatility and change that's you know happened in our lives, one is psychological flexibility, which is you know a person's ability to just sort of not be too rigid with what they're thinking and what they're doing. To, to have an ability, and you hear it in other ways, like, you know, pivot, and we're being agile, and so those 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 athletes who have an ability to say, well, this is the way I like to do it, and this is how I prefer to do it, but. If circumstances don't allow, yep. I can change. I can win another way. I can. Yeah. I don't have to have um, you know my footy gear all pointing north out the bedroom door. So I save one point two seconds in the morning to get from you know my house to the ground, and that sort of rigidity, um, which is interesting because you mentioned routine, how important that yeah. is. So there's obviously a bit of a fine line. Absolutely. And th- these are, you know, I love those discussions. And yeah. it's my story I, I, I tell, I've done this with a group of cricketers um, and one of the players sort of then went away and did his own thing for a little while and, and pulled me up at training and he said, I think I might have taken that routines thing too far. Um, so what I've done is when I go to bed, and that's why I say, you know, my cricket bag pointing north, he said, well, yeah, I, I point it out the door with the handles facing, you know, the right way. And, and I kind of went, yeah, you have. You've taken it too far. <laughs> That's not what we're meaning. We're just saying, you know, organise yourself a little bit, do the big things, but there's a, there, there's a tipping point where yeah. that becomes rigid, inflexible, and, and certainly with, you know, if you think about the footy world, we've been in hubs, we've been out of hubs, we've had 20-minute quarters, we've had stand on the mark, don't stand on the mark. Lots of change, and those players fluid in terms of their positions. If you're just a centre half back, and that's your mindset, I can only play centre half back. You're probably not going to have that 200, 250, 300 game career. Um, most players, even the absolute utter champions, have a look at um, Shawnee Burgoyne. I was just thinking of him. Yeah. How many positions has has Shawnee performed so highly at all of them? Yeah. yeah. And clearly, there's a there's a sort of um, flexible mindset in there where he said, "Okay, well, I probably do like to play mid, but I can go forward and win a game. Or if I'm needed to plug a hole in in the the, the back six, I can do that too." Yeah, so yeah. flexibility. Are there other other mindsets that spring to mind as as critical ones for high consistent high performance? Yeah, and I guess sort of related to it, and it it has been another of the. The, the buzz terms, but just resilience. That there are so many setbacks, um, and in sport, you know, there are in most sports there are more losers than winners. Um, only one team, one athlete gets to win the gold medal grand final. So it, it's just critical to be developing those sort of resilient mindsets, where you have setbacks, you have failures. And they're not seen as the end of the road. And in fact, in a really weird way, we kind of almost embrace them and go, oh, good. Yep, I failed here because it'll teach me something about what I need to do next time. Mm. And I think those two things, probably a third one is, is just sort of openness. You know, if you talk about your Travis Bokes, um, just 
eager to learn, always open something new. What have you got for me? You know, you can almost sort of see them going around to um, each different person, expert that they meet and going, oh, okay, well, what's this about? What have you got? Just just a, a curiosity and an openness, you know, willingness to, to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, mate. That's great. So the, uh, the psychological safety, the resilience to be able to cope with setbacks and embrace them and, and almost use them to make you better. Um, the openness to yeah, have an open mind and um, I guess that's, is that managing the ego a little bit, that openness? <laughs> yeah, and it's, that, it's really challenging because a lot of athletes, particularly those elite high performers, a big part of why they've got that to where they've got it is, is being driven, is being, you know, super confident a lot of the time with what they do, you know, being really conscientious and focused. And so this idea about sort of embracing I reckon there are a lot of coaches who are fearful of that too, sort of this embracing, you know, we're going to fail. We're going to yeah. lose some, some stuff and that's okay as long as we learn something from it. Um, so it, it does butt up against that sort of driven achievement win um, sort of mindset as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you mentioned confidence. What is the, what is this, what's the difference when an athlete is being confident compared to arrogant? <laughs> Yeah, and I'm probably a little bit, a little bit different to a lot of others on this issue. Confidence for me is a nice to have, not a, a need to have. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been fortunate enough to work with some incredibly high-achieving athletes, one who was a twice world champion, an Olympic medalist, who was always in trouble with his teammates because they'd ask him, you know, how do you think we'll go today, wanting um, a confidence message, and he'd say, well, I reckon we'll struggle. That team over there, they're pretty bloody good. I reckon that didn't they beat us last time? And he was just quite literal and honest with it. And he was kind of saying, I'm not all that confident, but I'll tell you what, he was no harder worker than, than yeah, this he was going to bring his best. He would just, he would get into the process and he would say, all right, well, yeah, let, let's just, and he was a rower. He would say, no, okay, let's just row our hardest and we'll see who wins at the end. Yeah. Um, so I'm probably a little, yeah, a, a little bit different. Um, where it comes to, to confidence, it's um, lots of people want to work with you on it, um, but it's, it's certainly not um, the, the top of my tree. There are other things that I like to work on first. And being uh, highly confident is not a bad thing. The arrogance thing um, is, though, because you, you start to, I, I suppose, underestimate your opponents a little bit when you're, when you're arrogant. You sort of dismiss them. You, you then don't put the time into, you know, figuring out their game plans. And so it, it's a bit of a slippery slope. But, you know, certainly being highly confident, I think you'd find a lot of our top performers just through that, that cycle and process of setting targets and goals, performing, achieving, reflecting, end up having, you know, a really good solid base of, of confidence anyway. Yep, yep. And what about yourself personally? What during your your professional career, what has been some of your biggest challenges? Um, and then, uh, what have you learned? Like, how have you grown from those challenges? I know you were in the hub for seven weeks. I imagine that was a challenge. But are there other ones that pop up spring to mind where they were really hard to navigate through? And but at the other end, you you really grew from it. Yeah, and look. Here, I don't want to get too morbid, but I, I had a period of time, um, there was probably 18 months where three athletes in different programs that I worked with uh, died, different circumstances. But um, uh, John McCarthy um, passed away when I was at Port. 
Not long before that, a young jockey, Caitlin Forrest, um, had a race fall and, and died. And then Husey, Phil Hughes passed away. I'd shifted over to cricket by then. And, you know, these are just incredibly traumatic um, events. Um, young people sort of in the prime of their life and, um, you know, sport tends to, to create these really intense sort of relationships. So being around and being um, the psychologist for those three groups um, was incredibly difficult. Um, seeing people who were, you know, I spoke to someone who was um, involved as an athlete in, in one of those deaths the other day. And this is, you know, we're going on, you know, well, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. Yeah. And he was saying, I'm still affected by that. So they were really, really challenging times. Professionally, um, you know, you, I, I learned so much because. You, you're there. It, people just need you more than they need you at other times. Yeah. Their genuine need, I can imagine that. Oh, absolutely. And um, and I guess the story I tell when I'm I'm doing mental health training now, particularly about um, the difference between how I personally handled J Mac versus Husey, um, was about self care. And if anything, um, I, I was closer to Husey than I was to to J Mac. But I just, I'd learnt so much by the time I came to, to deal with, with Husey's death that even though it was intense, even though there were late nights, it was incredibly emotional for everybody, it was the same. But I was just doing these little bits of self-care throughout it that meant that at the end of that time, I was still functional, I was still helping people, I was still able to do my work, whereas... Um, the, the, the J-Mac and, you know, we weren't sort of mates and to be honest, I hadn't really worked with him all that much, but I was exhausted after two weeks of that. And um, it, so, yeah, it was incredibly intense sort of 18 months, um, but, yes, it, it taught me so much almost about myself more than about me as a, a professional. Yeah, sorry to hear, mate. That's, that's mm. incredibly challenging times and, um, yeah, being the position that you're in to be able to cope with that uh, personally and then also be able to be there for others uh, is pretty special. Um, yeah, so that, there was a time there I thought they were going to start calling me Dr. Death because every program that I've worked with, someone, someone passed away. But thankfully, um, that, that's sort of all behind us now. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, you mentioned self-care. For, for those, I mean, the last couple of years has been quite traumatic for, for everyone in different reasons. Um, so when you're dealing with, but due to COVID largely, but due to, mm. you know, when you're dealing with trauma, what, what are some good things to do in, when it comes to self-care? And look, all the really simple, basic things of, of health. Um, so, you know, doing your best to, to eat, even when you don't feel like eating, um, you know, you, you, you're stressed, you, know, you lose your appetite, um, sleep. I'm a meditator, so um, you know when you're busy and thinking and caring about everybody else, they're the kind of things that sort of slip off your radar. So um, I was really conscious just when I had a little window, for instance, with with Phil's passing, where I would switch the phone off for a little bit. Um, I would try and do my meditation in the morning, a little bit of exercise. You know, I, I like going for a run, and that's quite a, a de-stressing thing for me. Get out and sort of nature and do a, a nice little run or something. Um, so all those really basic things um, are, are critically important. In fact, they're the most important things for people to do 
when something traumatic has happened because you need to help even just subconsciously your brain start to say, um, I'm safe. Something awful has happened. It's been overwhelming, but I'm actually safe. There's a few things that, that feel a little bit normal to me, mm. you know, a bit familiar, a bit comforting. Yeah. People, connections, we're all a little bit different with how much connection you know, we need, um, but to try and stay connected to people somehow, um, you know, just the people close to you, all those they're all things that everybody knows, but it's just about keeping them on your radar when, when times are really sort of stressful and, and traumatic. Yeah, where it can be easy just to let them go, like you said, not eat or mm. certainly sitting uh, and just do, not being distracted and meditating would be incredibly challenging during trauma. trauma but, um, mm. yeah, sticking to the habits, um, yeah, that, uh, that's great. And, and that's good advice just in, in general, isn't it, for, for self-care? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, um, what, what about highlights of your, your career that you look back fondly and uh, that you're proud of? Well, uh, just before we, uh, we, we came on, I, I said to you, um, I was really lucky when I got into the Olympic sports. Typically what happens, it's a four-year cycle and staff sort of leave, get to Olympic Games. It's been a huge build-up, you know, really exhausted and, and leave. So there's often jobs um, and opportunities in that first year or so. Um, I actually got in right at the tail end of a, an Olympic cycle, so I kind of parachuted in. Um, yeah. the, the kayak team was one of the first teams that I got to work with, and we had an Olympic athlete in Hannah Davis, and she won a bronze medal in an absolute nail-biter of a race. And oh, I wasn't there, but I was watching it at home, um, and I was just jumping off the, the couch. Okay. It was the most sort of thrilling thing. I haven't worked with an AFL team who've won a premiership, but, you know, you can imagine just the intensity of being this long build-up. You've all been working together trying to achieve this thing, and, and this was one of these races where it was literally like that and it was the last stroke they got across the line to, um, to win a medal. So that was pretty exciting. Um, but, I, you know, I actually get a lot of pleasure and a lot of joy out of, um, you know, that individual, working with that individual who's sort of a, a struggler and you can then see what they're trying to do and, and, you know, they just execute something out on the field in competition. They're probably the moments where, you know, where you know somebody's working so hard on this and it might have taken them months or sometimes years to be able to develop a particular mental skill or handle a certain situation. Yep. And, and there's just so much satisfaction in, in watching that moment sort of unfold. And, and not everybody knows, but you sort of know, oh, they nailed that. That's something yeah. that I've been trying to, to, to um, execute for so long. Yeah, yeah, you can see that uh, there is a lot of similarities with that, with the coaching element of, of sports psych, it seems like, or, or mm. certainly with your, with your philosophy and the care that goes into it, um, with the, you know, celebrating those small wins along the way. Um, going back to the Olympics, it really is the pinnacle of high performance, uh, especially the nature of the four years, that one event for mm. some training their whole life for that moment. Um, you mentioned setbacks earlier. Uh, how do you um, consult someone that has had maybe a hamstring strain leading up to the, to the event or um, something significant, they fall sick or whatever it might be? Um, and, yeah, is there ways around navigating? Obviously, if it's severe, they won't be able to compete, but there, is there a bit of a middle ground where you're like, I think we can still try this out and you've turned it around and they've been able to still compete at a high level uh, when maybe they thought that it was all over? 
Yeah, yeah, and and you know there there are so many uncontrollables um, in sports. Somebody's going to get sick. Somebody's going to get injured. Um, you know the team bus isn't going to arrive. So you, you do what you can to kind of prepare people for those and do a bit of what if sort of planning. Um, but certainly um, in terms of the the strategies. If they are able to compete, but perhaps, you know, it's looking like they can't compete at their absolute best, and even regardless, you know, as you get close to, to game time, you want people to shift from that outcome sort of focus and get really into process. So the conversation might be around, look, yeah, you were, you were crook last night, the night before the gold medal race, and you've had no sleep. Talk to me about your race plan. What are you going to do? Let's, let's take the medal and the time and whatever off the board, what do you know how to do? What are you confident that you can do? Can you nail those tumble turns or, you know, can you, um, you know, follow your pre-match routine and just get them to focus on process? And, you know, sometimes people are capable of surprising themselves and certainly there have been many, many performances. Often people wouldn't know, but where the athlete got no sleep the night before or had some, you know, niggling injury that, um, uh, you know, that they'd sort of carried throughout a final series. And, you know, the reality is that, that most athletes at the end of a long preparational season have got some sort of niggles. You know, there's not too many AFL players go into a grand final feeling completely sort of cherry ripe. Yep. <laughs> it's probably more, more the other way that they're all, you know, carrying something, some sort of shoulder, knee, back, hip, ankle, whatever that's, um, that's giving them grief. And that's the, that goes back to that resilience mindset, it seems. Yeah. About really being able to cope with that setback and, and, like you said, focus on the controllables and the process. Um, so do yeah. you think with, with resilience, because like you said, it does get thrown a lot, around a lot, is it like kicking ability? Is it, it, it's, it's a genuine skill that you practice. Yeah, yeah. So it's what, we know, what we know about sort of mindsets is that mindsets that get activated um, are more likely to be activated Next time, they get stronger. They're like muscles. So if you work out your resilience mindset or muscle, it's, it gets stronger. So we actually need people, if they're going to be able to cope with those you know, stresses of, of game day and big matches and so on, we have to expose them to that, to that stressor so that they develop the strategy so that that mindset is there, it's strong, it's, it's powerful. Um, and... You know, one of the things I think that resonated for the Hawthorne coaches when we were talking about this, um, I talked a little bit, and I wasn't in the uh, British Olympic team, but we certainly heard lots of stories about these guys who were renowned as being these amazing athletes, technically brilliant, who won nothing because they just kind of folded in these big pressure races. And so what their coaching staff did in the, the lead up to the London Olympic Games was just say, We've got to compete more. We've got to develop the compete mindset. So at every opportunity, they just made them compete. It didn't matter whether it was who could um, you know, get off the water the fastest or who could carry the most oars. You just had to compete, compete, compete. And lo and behold, they just got better at competing. And it's, it's the same with, with resilience, that yeah. if we want people to be more resilient, we have to expose them in their window of, of tolerance, but we have to expose them to that just like you would in the gym to say muscles don't get stronger if we apply the same stimulus the whole time. So we can't go like that because we'll break them, but we have to find where that sort of window of tolerance is and, and stretch the, the limit a bit. Yep. And, then, and then that system gets stronger and develops and then we can 
up that window a little bit. And that's really what, um, what happens with, with resilience. It's lots of little micro um, bursts of, of activity. Yeah, what a gem. Love that. Mm. that that's great, mate. We'll, we'll go into the, um, the lighter part of the podcast. This is the, the personal side. It's a bit to get to know <laughs> Matt. So it's a bit of fun. Uh, the first one's which movie or, or TV series has impacted you the most and why? Oh, look, and I'm, I'm going to show my age a bit here. I'll, I'll give you two. Star Wars came out when I was in, in primary school yeah. and it was the absolute hit of, I think I was in grade five, yeah. and every kid for their birthday that year so 30 kids in your class, every, you know, every kid gets invited to every other kid's birthday party. We'd go and see Star Wars. So it's kind of like imprinted in my, my brain. I've been a bit of a Star Wars nuffy ever since. And um, last lockdown, uh, 2020, I got my kids into it. So they're, uh, they're, they're sort of Star Wars nuffies. Um, and then the other one, I have to hate to say it, but I'm a bit of a closet survivor fan. And I think it's the kind of, Games, yeah. The gameplay, the psychological stuff. It's almost like sport, but you're in the outback. There's all these, you know, interesting dynamics. Um, it's not always the strongest player that gets through. And I just like how it works at, at multiple levels. It's um, to work out, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, it's a bit of a dark secret. A lot of people, you know, think it's a terrible show. So I, I, don't, uh, I don't spread that one around in public too often. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a great – I mean, I haven't wa- I've watched some Survivors before, but I completely understand where you're coming from. Like, it, I mean, it does get butchered a bit probably with the ads and whatever it's been, um, but the concept is, is awesome mm. uh, of it. And, uh, yeah, good one to, from that psychology point of view to, to analyse and try and work out how's this, how's this going to work out because we are pretty complex uh, species, aren't we, humans? Yeah, yeah, and it's that, that interplay always between – Physical, mental, and social. Yep. You've got to be doing something in all those different areas. If you're completely a hack with all the physical stuff, I'll probably vote you out because you're too weak. If, if you're not mentally strong enough, yep. But if you're not playing a bit of a social game as well and working on the relationships and, and you know, tuning into all the dynamics. So mm. it's, it's, I find it fascinating. Mm. Yeah, simple <laughs> transferable skills to elite sport. Yes. <laughs> There is, a, there is a footy club out there who will tell you I tried to get them in a pre-season to, to um, I didn't tell them that that's what we were doing, but we were doing a bit of a survivor exercise. <laughs> I love it. And what about our favourite inspirational quote or life motto? Well, it, it flows from the, the previous one, um, yeah. Star Wars. So my, my all-time favourite um, sports site quote, and I, when I was teaching sports psych at uni, I, I used to throw this up and say, you tell me which um, you know, famous figure or character said this, do or do not, there is no try. And people would say, oh, that was Kevin Sheedy or it was um, you know, Tiger Woods or it was Bjorn Borg. And I said, no, it was Yoda. Yoda from Star Wars says, he's training Luke, Master Jedi, do or do not, there is no try. <laughs> do or do not, there is no try like that. <laughs> It hasn't been mentioned yet either as well. I've had that one in the show oh, notes. Got that order myself. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Yoda's made a, a star. He's made the uh, people <laughs> mention list. <laughs> if he, I don't know, he's obviously not a person, but anyway, we'll add him in. <laughs> um, what about in your work life? What, are you, what, are you, what makes you angry? What are your pet peeves? Oh, um, 
I, I bristle a bit. I, you know, I, I think I'm a scientist at heart, so I want things to be sort of evidence based, and it's really challenging in 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 my discipline in particular. But you know, we should be trying to measure some stuff, and you know, I, I reckon a lot of sport is. I reckon mm. it's yeah. I reckon this works, and you know, we won the game, and I got there early, so you know, I should get there early every week. That, that's a bit of an I reckon. Should we make it scientific? So it grates a little bit when I – and I think a lot of our decision makers um, haven't come through that scientific tradition that, that um, strength and conditioning coaches and physios and doctors and psychologists, we've been trained as scientists, so we've sort of got this – This is we have some hypotheses, but we want to be able to prove them and we want to remove as much doubt and bias and – I think a lot of our decision makers in sport are, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Oh, that's a ripper. Yeah, let's go for that. And or that worked for Richmond won the flag, so we're doing that too. Maybe we're different. Maybe what you think was the the magic, you know, ingredient for Richmond wasn't the magic ingredient for Richmond. So that's probably the one that that does, you know, get my hackles up a bit. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. Good good point. And what about these two are both COVID-free world? Uh, what's your favorite way to spend your day off? I'm a bit of a morning person and it's going to sound tragic, but what I really love to do is to get up early, sort of at sunrise, get out for a bit of a run, nice sort of leisurely run, hopefully a little trail run somewhere out in the bush or along a river. Um, come back, have a nice brekkie. I like tea and I've got this, um, I've got a little home um, tea brewer. Yep. So I might have a nice green tea. Wait for the family to get up and then spend a bit of time with the family. It's it's pretty tragic. Nothing too um, earth shattering there, but that's uh, that's the stuff that gets me up and about these days. Yep. And you mentioned you got kids. At, um, how old? And have you got a couple of kids? One child. Got uh, two girls. So they're uh, eleven and nine. Um, both still at uh, at primary school and. Uh, yeah, making their way in the world, and I'll tell you what, though, um, very glad they're back at school, homeschooling. Um, any of the parents out there will know exactly what I'm talking about, homeschooling while trying to work. And, you know, my poor wife, when I disappeared for seven or eight weeks last year to go into the hubs, um, I, yeah, I, she was heroic in just trying to keep life going because it was yeah. really hard work. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing what, what people have been able to cope with over the last year and a bit. Mm. Um, what about favourite holiday destination and why? It'd have to be a beachy place. Um, I've, I've, I haven't done a whole lot of international travel. I had a fabulous holiday a while ago, pre-kids, um, in Thailand. Just, just love the mix of culture and food and mountains and big cities and beaches and stuff so there was just so much to sort of see and do but certainly um domestically if i get a little window to have a a bit of time out we're usually going to find ourselves at a beach somewhere get a nice mm-hmm. little airbnb and spend some time near the beach yeah how good it's coming to that time of year as well melbourne's starting to perk up a little bit we're getting some sunshine it is it um, is I'm, I'm, I'm eyeing off some time <laughs> yeah summer's summer's approaching that's uh, great uh, well thank thank you so much for sharing mate it's one thing to have the knowledge and the information but the way that you've uh, helped us with implementing the practical tools and and having awareness around the, the big rocks when it comes to sports psychology and um you know having a balance between mental well-being and and high performance 
and how important that is, that connection, uh, and then sharing your stories across all the different sports that you've worked in, both individual and team sport, mate. It's been great. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and, and I know our guests have taken a lot out of it, those listening live and, and listening in the podcast world, whatever day or time it is in podcast world. But last question for you, mate. What are you excited about for, for the rest of 2021? What's on the horizon for you, Matt? Yeah, well, certainly uh, personally, as we were just talking about then, you know, just having a bit of time out over Christmas and, and uh, spending time with friends and family, that'll be nice. But on a professional level, um, I've been doing a little bit of work over the last year or two um, with a, a private institution, the Institute for Social Neuroscience, um, who've up until now been a training organisation for, for psychologists. So I've done a little bit of work with them, but we're just sort of broadening our scope a little bit, looking at things we do. And we've, we've got some ideas to take um, some of what we've done, people like you and I at elite sport level, just to community sport. And um, so that, that's going to be pretty exciting. We're, we're probably a little way off um, at the moment, um, sort of, you know, talking about it too much, but um, I'm really looking the forward. Works. Yeah, that, and that's the new thing, you know. I always like having something new I haven't really done before, so... There'll be a bit of work in that space, I hope, in the next 12 months. Yeah, amazing. Oh, that's, that's really exciting for, for community athletes because it is so important and probably something we took for granted um, and really appreciate the moment now with being in lockdown, um, how important co- the community of a, of a club, a local club is and the impact that has and to have people like yourself work uh, and be able to you know, consult with, with clubs would, would be a massive help. Yeah, and we know there's, there's an appetite out there. They're asking already um, without us having to sort of go to them and advertise. They're already asking, so we know that there's an appetite. It's just how to, yeah, how to bring some of the things that we do uh, at, in the professional elite environments in, in a way that they can access at uh, a community level, but it should be fun. Yeah, fantastic. Awesome. Mm. Well, thanks again, mate. Thanks for, thanks for jumping on. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian at the Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is... Um... It'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end-of-one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes. Yeah, game changes, whatever that might be. And, look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and, you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete for. Yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with academy member Rama Davies, the strength conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome Rama to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at 
at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Ramada, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And, yeah, thanks, um, thanks Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was you spoke a, a, quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat, um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did um, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it, yeah, certainly, yeah, has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day just a bit to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever as an S&C coach, you know, if something's you're having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm -hmm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things and um, if I kind of didn't have that fear, fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review, or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.